and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com. And joining me today, he is the man who played Troll in the Walt Disney animated series American Dragon, Jake Long, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Thank you. Was I Troll? Apparently, according to your IMDb, you were Troll in American Dragon, Jake Long. I, I remember it just like it was yesterday, a century ago. But but Troll, I thought I was some sort of dragon on American Dragon. I remember, you know, one of the difficulties when you, you do an animated figure is w- when you do something for Disney or something like that, they'll actually give you the picture of what you're playing, which is very nice. And then you could kind of imagine you were you were that picture. And they showed me the picture of the character I was playing – and I did the whole thing, I think, kind of like, how are you, my friend? <laughs> how are you? How are you, my little boy? How are you, my fine boy? And I did the whole thing. And then the director, these directors are like brilliant who do these voiceover things. They're just so fast and so sharp. They go, well, can we try the whole thing in a slightly higher register? Well, you don't like the hello, little boy? And they, no, no, we don't like that. Could you bring it up a little bit? I go, Hello, little boy. How are you? Could you bring it a little higher? Hello, little boy. How are you? Yeah, let's try it there a little bit. So I go, hello, little boy. How are you? Did you have it? And I, and I got to tell you, you know, this could have been the beginning of Sandy Ryerson, and I didn't even know it. Sandy Ryerson, not, your character from Glee. Yeah, not until we just discussed this now. It could have been that pitch shift. Uh, I, I wonder if they do the pitch shifting now, but it was um, – I remember that, and it was one of those times that I did one of those animated parts, and they said, this is going to be a ton of fun. You know, we'll have you back later. This is going to be a recurring part, and it never was because I think I was maybe so bad as Troll. Mm, well, I, sir, I think you did nothing to disprove that possibility just now. <laughs> but, uh, that's, that's, that's cruel. Listen, any- <laughs> you bring up Troll. You, you dig it up, man. Yes. You dig it you up. Mess you with the bull. everything you get, you get. You mess with the bull, you got the horns of Stephen Tobolowsky. Um, <laughs> but Stephen, you know, it occurs to me that when you're playing such fantastical characters like Troll or maybe you were a dragon named Troll, I have no idea. Yeah, um, but yeah. you've played all sorts of different characters. Uh, choir teacher, insurance salesman, judge, lawyer, serial killer, psychologist. Over the years, do you ever do anything to kind of research these different roles, or do you just kind of jump in with the script? Ooh, well, that's actually a very, very uh, good question. Very good question. Uh, in fact, I was not too long ago. Not too long ago, I was teaching my improvisation class. I teach an improvisation class in Los Angeles every Sunday morning. 
And I was talking to the class about how to research a role because there seems to be kind of an unwritten law of nature that when you finally do get an audition, you never have time you need to work on it. So you have to use your time wisely and you have to understand that not all research is useful. I repeat to actors out there, not all research is useful. Some sources are better than others. And I found that there are basically three types of sources. And a primary source is always the best. This is when you're able to actually talk to the person you're portraying. Now, I was able to do this when I played a Texas defense attorney in a movie for television called Deadly Medicine. I called up the real me in Texas and asked him a few questions. And I found out that he never, ever wanted to be a lawyer. But he secretly longed to be a country western singer. He laughed and told me how he always kept a guitar in his office and his clients and his colleagues always made fun of his constant songwriting attempts. Well, I told our director, Richard Cola, about this the next day and suggested that I bring my guitar to the set and see if there was any way to use it in one of the office scenes. Richard laughed and shrugged his shoulders and said, why not? He was always game to try anything. Well, we did. A couple days later, we were doing my first office scene. And unfortunately, it was one of those really dreadful expository scenes that always seem to be in TV movies. Its only dramatic function seemed to be to review everything for the viewers who were in the kitchen getting a snack and missed the first 30 minutes of the movie. It featured me asking my client and heroine Veronica Hamill everything we already knew about, who she was, where she was born, how long she wanted to be a doctor, so on and so forth. So when we rehearsed, I decided I would pick up my guitar and start working on a song while I asked her my questions. Veronica was surprised at first and then amused by the guitar playing. And surprisingly, the scene started to become interesting in a dramatic way. It suddenly became about two people showing their inner selves, and it had a ring of truth. It really paid off a couple weeks later when we shot another scene where I had to pick Veronica up to take her out to dinner. And Richard asked if I could do something to fill in the time from when I parked my car in her driveway until I rang her doorbell. And I said, well, sure. Why don't I sing the song I wrote in the office? Richard <laughs> laughed again and said, you actually finished that thing? I said, well, sure. You got to do something in the trailer. He said, well, go ahead. At least we don't have to pay for the rights to use it. So I sang, Richard used it, and it was all inspired by going to a primary source. But a primary source is a very rare bird. Usually we have to view our objects from the distance of a secondary source. Now this is when you talk to a real live person who actually does what your character does in a movie. For example, I talked to an FBI agent before I did Thelma and Louise, I took fly casting lessons to play a championship fisherman in Valley of Light. In every doctor show I've ever been on, they always hire a medical student or a nurse to show you how to drape that stethoscope around your neck so you don't look too silly. Movies and television will usually go to great lengths for you to get an understanding of your part. Uh, when I did Californication, they brought in professional body waxers to the set to instruct Pam Adlon, who plays Marcy, the waxer to the stars on the show, on how to look proficient at her craft. 
That unfortunately ended up with me getting half of my back waxed and a near-terminal case of eczema. For the next three months, I was rubbing up against tree trunks like a bear. All of these are secondhand sources. Their purpose is to give you the benefit of experience without having earned it. Now, the worst type of research, the worst you can get, is also the most prevalent. It's what I call third-hand sources. It's a group of selected facts presented by nameless, faceless people that we assume are experts. This is the stuff of encyclopedias, gossip, and now the Internet. One of my students in my improv class, in an attempt to do a 21st century version of bringing an apple to the teacher, raised his hand and said, You know, I actually spent the week researching you. I asked him what he meant. He smiled and said, The Internet. Pretty amazing stuff. My first reaction was, oh dear. You see, I went through a period about a couple years ago where I'm embarrassed to say I Googled myself daily, sometimes twice a day, and it was never particularly flattering. I read various descriptions of me that would make even the most secure individual want to join the circus. On a single day, I read articles where I was described as being alternately lanky, pudgy, doughy, balding, utterly forgettable, and constantly irritating. And those were the good ones. Then there were the ones that dipped into the animal kingdom and called me ostrich-like and bear-like. Some proclaimed with first-hand certainty that I pretended to be heterosexual but secretly preferred chasing transgenders. I'm assuming that someone fell asleep watching 60 Minutes and woke up during Entourage and confused the two. I braced myself and asked my student what he discovered. Here is what he read, and I quote, Tobolowsky was born in Dallas, Texas. He attended Justin F. Kimball High School. While there, he was also lead singer and lead guitarist in the first band formed by musician Stevie Ray Vaughan and his brother Jimmy Vaughan. Wow. Amazing. Of course, it would have been more impressive had it been true. But I mean, you gotta love the internet. It can tear you down and build you up with a single click of the mouse. It can help you pad that resume. In the early days, it was heralded as the ultimate reference tool. In actuality, it's become the electronic version of the notoriously unreliable friend of a friend. The person with the basic level of sanity would certainly deduce that if I was in a band with Stevie Ray Vaughan, I certainly wasn't going to be playing lead guitar. In truth, I did know Stevie Ray, and I did play with him once on a record. So here is the true story of what happened. In high school, I was part of a three-man folk group called A Cast of Thousands. I was a triple threat. I couldn't play the guitar, I couldn't play the bass, and I couldn't sing. Occasionally, I was asked to do all three. The real musician of our group was Bobby Foreman, who went on to become a member of the new Christie Minstrels. I graduated, but we still occasionally played together at parties and at churches. Through Bobby's connections, we were picked to record two songs on an album of Dallas garage bands called A New High, spelled H-I, like hello... I suppose it was a veiled drug reference, but in Dallas at that time, the drug of choice was Dristan. Woodstock had happened, but we weren't too sure what it was. Side note. I am aware that this is the late 60s and early 70s, 
before there were technically garage bands. I mean, we had garages, but bands never practiced in them. In Texas, garages were where people kept their cars and lawnmowers. Bands practiced in bedrooms or on porches or in the hallways after school. Jim Rigby, who went on to become a minister in Austin, wrote the two songs we were going to record. We practiced the songs a few times in the car on the way over to the studio. Bobby listened, looked at me, rolled his eyes and said, Tobo, don't sing there. I'll sing that part. Just pretend. I said, Bobby, it's a recording. It doesn't matter if I pretend or not. You just sing it. I could go stand in the control room if you want. Bobby laughed and patted me on the back and said, it's all getting better, Stephen. You're not flat that much anymore, and the guitar is sounding like you really kind of know how to play it. Just for today, for the recording, let me do it. We got to Tempo 2 Studios, and Bobby said, I asked this kid, Stevie Vaughan, to play on our songs. He's 14, but he's really good. I was hurt that Bobby actually jobbed out guitar parts to some kid who wasn't even in our group. I said, Bobby, why? I can play. Bobby rolled his eyes and said, well, don't. This kid is really good, and he's going to make us sound like we know what we're doing. We walked onto the recording stage, and Stevie was already there sitting on a metal folding chair with a Gibson guitar in his lap. He was joking with the engineer. He was leaning back, and then he let loose a blinding, fluid blues lead. Bobby looked over at me, raised his eyebrows. I looked at Bobby. Point made. We got our guitars out. We tuned up. Bobby told the engineer we would just run through the songs, let Stevie hear them, and figure out what he wanted to do. We started. Stevie jumped in immediately, and after about a half a minute said, That's enough. I got this. Want to just lay one down and see what happens? Bobby said, Sure. Stevie said, Just tell me. You want me to sound like Clapton or Jimi Hendrix? I interrupted and asked Bobby, Who's Jimi Hendrix? Stevie just stared at me. Bobby rolled his eyes and said, Never mind. Just don't sing. Stand over there. Pretend to play. Stevie, it's your call on the lead, whatever you want to do. Stevie considered and said, Clapton. I'll do Clapton. We recorded the basic tracks for both songs in less than an hour. It was time for Stevie to record his leads. The playback started. Stevie started nodding in rhythm to the opening measure. He was totally relaxed, totally connected to the song, despite its inherent goofiness. He started adding barred chords, some short runs under the basic track. Then he got to his lead. Stevie changed his posture. He leaned back and started a long, blistering string of notes that led to unexpectedly new melodies, climaxes. I watched the engineer get up and stick his head out the recording room door. He called out something down the hallway, came back in quickly, and sat down. A moment later, the head of the studio came into the control room to watch. Through the glass, I could see the faces of the two men. Their eyes were fixed on Stevie's hands. There was no display of emotion. When he finished a take, the head of the studio turned on the mic and said, That was nice, son. You want to do another? Stevie shrugged and said, Sure. He went into another lead, more melodic than the first. The mic came on from the control booth again. You got another one? Stevie started grinning and made a sign for them to keep rolling the tape. Stevie started another improvisation. Again, the blank faces behind the glass. 
Stevie would start in one register and come slamming down to power chords, almost like he was two people playing the guitar. And as he played, this time he started laughing. The men in the control booth just kept it rolling. I recognize now what that moment was. We were all accidental witnesses to the real thing. The real thing is like love in a bedtime story. It's like the burning bush that you know doesn't exist until you see it. The real thing is so rare, you don't often recognize it when it comes your way. You just know something inside of you is different. In a little over a decade from this moment, I would be sitting in a bar in Buffalo, New York, with my dear friend, fellow actor, and wisest man I have ever known, Bob. And over an Irish whiskey, Bob would tell me the difference between honesty and truth. That honesty presents a point of view, but truth tells the whole story. You have to hear it once, and it changes you forever. We didn't have words for it at the time, but Stevie told the truth. He was a primary source. When we finished the recording, I went back to SMU and told my new girlfriend, Beth, that I had just finished cutting some hot wax. (laughs) I think she was impressed that I was actively on the road to becoming a rock star. I didn't dissuade her. Even at the age of 19, I knew that for some reason, women were very easily captivated by the idea of being in love with a man who was going to spend most of his life on a tour bus. A new high never had a distributor. In a move of marketing genius, Tempo 2 Studios tried to sell the album the same way schools tried to raise money for field trips. Instead of selling chocolate bars, the musicians were supposed to go door-to-door and sell the albums to their friends, family, and neighbors. In the end, we all had boxes of records sitting in our garages, a fitting end for a garage band, even one that boasted the first recording ever of Stevie Ray Vaughan. But that's not the story I wanted to tell you. The real story happened 20 years later. I was shooting Great Balls of Fire in Memphis, 1989. That's when I met Stevie's older brother, Jimmy Vaughn. Jimmy was also a guitar legend. He rose to fame as lead guitarist for the fabulous Thunderbirds. And in a bit of stunt casting, Jim McBride, our director of Great Balls of Fire, Cast Jimmy as the guitarist in Jerry Lee Lewis's band. Jerry Lee Lewis, of course, played by Dennis Quaid. In my two months in Memphis, I spent very little time on the set. I would work maybe one day a week and spend the rest of my time watching wrestling on TV and eating barbecue. In the evenings, I would hang out with Jimmy and watch the fabulous Thunderbirds rehearse, which was wonderful. One evening after... Jimmy finished practicing, we went over to Kiva Recording Studios. Kiva is where Eric Clapton recorded Layla. We spent the evening with the technicians recording songs and working hard to stay at a constant but not overwhelming level of intoxication. Jimmy and I left at dawn and decided to grab some breakfast before heading back to the hotel to get enough sleep in preparation for another night of going out on the town. We went to this little 24-hour diner. It was pretty much empty. There were a couple truck drivers sitting over at the counter. But sitting by himself, over the table near the window, was Stevie Ray. Jimmy muttered, oh my God. I did a double take. I hadn't seen Stevie since we recorded a new high. My enthusiasm got the better of me, and I ran over to the table and screamed, Hey, Stevie, it's me, Stephen Tavolosky. Remember cast a thousand Skimble High School? We played on a new high together. 
If looks could kill. Stevie turned his head in my direction, gave me the stink eye and said, Man, we don't do that here. I apologized. Jimmy stepped forward and quietly said, Hey, bro. They shook hands. Jimmy bent down and they hugged. Jimmy said, Mind if we join you? Stevie gestured and we sat down. Jimmy and I ordered pancakes and from that point on, I just ate and watched and listened. From what I gathered, there had been a rift between Stevie and Jimmy. I have no idea as to the causes. But at that breakfast, fences seemed to be mended. Jimmy was saying that they had so much they could share, and it was a shame to let any more time go by. Stevie nodded in a sort of stoic agreement. Jimmy suggested they should make an album together. Stevie liked the sound of that and said he always wanted to. Jimmy said, then let's do it. Music always has the power to build bridges, even over time and injury. For the next few weeks, Jimmy was on cloud nine. He was spending his extra time down at Kiva recording with Stevie. For the next couple months, they recorded all of the basic tracks that would become their great album, Family Style. In August of 1990, Stevie was invited to play in a concert with his childhood hero, Eric Clapton. The brothers flew up to Wisconsin together and played with Clapton in a sold-out conference. That night after the show, four helicopters were supposed to take the musicians back to Chicago. Stevie jumped in one of the helicopters. Jimmy followed suit, and then Jimmy's wife, Connie, who grew up down the street from me, jumped on also. The pilot turned and said, Sorry, ma'am, we're heavy. You'll have to take the next chopper. At which point Jimmy unbuckled and said, Where my wife goes, I go. Jimmy jumped off the helicopter. That was it. A moment later, the helicopter took off in the haze. It never made altitude and crashed. Stevie was gone. Jimmy was devastated. He told me that when Stevie died, he was shattered into a million pieces, and the only thing he had to pull himself together was finishing the album. Jimmy said the final mix on Family Style became his act of mourning. So the next time you listen to that album, you'll know that it's the very soul of rock and roll. A combination of love and pain and the unstoppable desire to play all night long. I found it increasingly difficult to discuss anything these days. One of the big problems is that of definition. No one ever really understands what we're talking about before the conversation begins. Now, this certainly affects big topics like religion, science, politics, and dating. But the difficulty has trickled down to little topics more than I could ever recall. I ordered a hamburger with french fries the other day, and the waitress asked me how I wanted my fries. I was confused. 
she chalked it up to the fact that I was having a senior moment and explained to me that I could have my fries normal, shoestring, curly fried, steak fried, hash brown, seasoned, seasoned steak, seasoned curly, or with dipping sauce. I momentarily thought my mother had been reincarnated and this was a new version of the beverage list. After I shook that off, I asked her why they went to so much trouble on altering the hamburger platter order. She looked at me with a slight amount of irritation and said, So we can give you what you want. I thanked her and ordered with shoestring fries. When I got my order, unfortunately, I had to send my burger back because it was raw in the middle, but I did get my fries. For fear of sounding like the waitress at the deli, I'd like to mention miracles again. I understand that there is a necessity of definition. Just like French fries, everyone has a different idea of what I mean. I've already discussed the idea of miracles in relationship to my broken neck as it relates to various biblical ideas of miracles. Is a miracle an event that merely exists outside our understanding of probability? Are they events that are bigger than astrology, as one definition for the name of God, El Shaddai, implies? Is it as simple as the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series? I think the question is more important than the answer. Whether they want to admit it or not, people have always believed in miracles. They just define them as something else. Belief is a very peculiar thing. We tend to put more store in a belief we like than a fact we hate. I just read that astrophysicists are connecting an array of telescopes around the world in hopes of imaging the silhouette of a black hole. The purpose, according to one scientist, is to get visual proof that the things actually exist. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I already thought they did exist by the number of books written about them and the constant references to them in Star Wars movies. But maybe they don't. Scientists have been pretending for years that they do. But all they really have done is base countless theories of their existence on assumptions made by Einstein and others. But there is no proof. There is just the certainty of belief. I think the most standard definition of miracles is that they are remarkable events outside of expectation. Of course, the trouble you run into is that everybody has different expectations. This was demonstrated notably in the 1942 film Tarzan's New York Adventure. In this film, Jane comes back to New York to see her blue-blooded family members. Tarzan finds many things in the Big Apple miraculous. Of course, they are all commonplace to us, like trains, taxicabs, but they were remarkable and outside Tarzan's understanding. In this case, it doesn't make him happy, and he utters the famous words, Tarzan, no like New York. Tarzan, go home. Words that I've often quoted on more than one occasion. As I look back at the three months I spent making great balls of fire, two in Memphis, one in London, no event was in itself miraculous. But the succession of improbabilities made this the most miraculous time in my life. I've already told you the true and somewhat improbable stories of Stevie Ray Vaughan, my marriage to Anne by a judge in a blue leisure suit and a pompadour toupee, driving to get a pizza in a tornado on the first of my three honeymoons. But there was more. When I arrived, I was driven to my new home away from home, the Radisson Hotel. 
I was told I would be staying here along with the crew, and all of the <laughs> all of the important people on the film would be staying across the street at a really good hotel, the Peabody. I was fortunate in that I had rid myself of hotel envy years ago by making the ill-advised decision to spend a night in a pay toilet at the Miami airport to save money. After that night, any hotel, motel, couch, backseat of a bus was fine with me. When I checked in, the clerk told me if I hurried over to the Peabody, I could watch the ducks. I asked for a consecutive translation into English, and she explained that every day the Peabody herded ducks back and forth from the lobby to the roof. Apparently, one of the things I was missing out on by not staying at a first-class hotel was poultry on the elevator. I like ducks, so I ran over to see the procession. I walked into the Peabody, and the first thing that caught my attention was not the crowd of tourists lining up by the elevator to watch the March of the Mallards. But on the other side of the lobby, I heard a piano playing. I wandered over to have a look. All alone, unnoticed by the duck-loving world, was an older man seated at the grand piano playing Lady of Spain. Okay, to be honest, the first thing that caught my attention was not the man, but the sign on the baby grand that said quite clearly, do not play piano. But there was something captivating in the way the old fellow was playing the song. There were no chairs in the area, so I sat down on the base of a potted tree and listened. And then he started to sing quietly. Then it hit me. There was no mistaking the voice. This was Jerry Lee Lewis. I settled in my pot of dirt, feeling like I was in the presence of the miraculous. Jerry Lee never looked up, never acknowledged me sitting under the ficus tree listening to him, but then suddenly, in mid-phrase, he changed the song to Fure Elise. He had no music. There was no music written to capture his rendering of Beethoven. He started adding bass and treble runs, making the simple song sound like jazz. A black bellman carrying a suitcase stopped, put his big bag down and smiled at me and raised his eyebrows. I nodded back in silent confirmation of the miracle. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a short, white assistant manager bustling across the lobby with a security guard behind him. There was no loving kindness in his officious walk. He spoke in low terms on his walkie-talkie, and I was certain he was on his way to enforce the no-piano-playing rule. As the assistant manager approached, the bellman held up an enormous hand and stopped him. The bellman turned and whispered, Quiet. It's the killer. The killer was the nickname Jerry Lee Lewis dubbed himself back in the 50s. The little man stopped in his tracks, held up his hand to the approaching bouncer and said, Never mind. It's all right. It's the killer. It's the killer. Go back. The bellman smiled at me and silently gestured if he could join me on my pot. I scooted over and we both sat beneath the ficus tree and listened to Jerry Lee play. The assistant manager and security guard stood beside us and we had become an audience of four. As Jerry Lee spun off variations of Beethoven, he then surprisingly began singing Lady of Spain again. There were a few moments of cognitive dissonance until Jerry Lee spun out of his evolving bass and the familiar return of the A melody came again and he finished playing Lady of Spain straight up. He stood up, never graced us with a nod of recognition, pushed the bench in, walked outside onto the street. The bellman turned to me and shook his head. He stood up, 
brushed off the potting soil from his uniform, picked up his bags, and headed off to complete his tasks as the screams came from the opposite side of the lobby. The ducks! The ducks are here! Oh, look! From the flashbulbs, he would have thought the beetles had just gotten out of the limo. I managed to get over and see a flock of waddling ducks in single file. I will not degrade the memory of the killer by calling the ducks miraculous. But they were cute in a sort of YouTube video sort of way. The next day, I got a call from my girlfriend, Anne, who was working in Alaska. She told me she was pregnant and I was going to be a father. But that is the story of a miracle for another day. I flew out to visit her in Anchorage to verify that morning sickness was just not the result of a bad oyster she ate, and then I returned a few days later and had to start shooting. I had what they call a run-of-the-picture deal. Now, this is not because of the size of my part. I was playing Judd Phillips, Jerry Lee Lewis's manager. But because I was scheduled to shoot the first day of the movie in Memphis and the very last day of the movie in London, the producers felt it was just cheaper to keep me around. The interesting side effect of being the first and the last is that you have the time to see a lot in between. This is the reason I was able to spend a lot of time with Jimmy Vaughn. This was the reason I was able to go to several blues bars in Memphis with Chet Flippo from Rolling Stone magazine. I was able to spend time with Jerry Lee Lewis at his home. He told me it was a mystery why anyone would want to do the story of his life. He just shook his head sadly and said as far as he could see it, it was nothing but weddings and funerals. Weddings and funerals. Had I known about the theory of contagion back then... I would have certainly spotted it in our cast. Doing a movie based on a rock and roll legend in one of the world's great musical cities prompted many actors to embrace their musical side. For some like John Doe, Jimmy Vaughn, Mojo Nixon, David Ferguson, the jump wasn't far because they were already professional musicians. Everybody seemed to be singing and playing something. Dennis Quaid formed a band and played at the Antenna Club, as did John Doe and Jimmy Vaughn. I was surprised that Trey Wilson, who played my brother Sam Phillips in the movie, was also a musician. He played guitar and had a beautiful baritone voice. He played at the antenna. I was feeling a little left out, but in the presence of such talent, I was very happy to be the continual audience. On Trey's last day, we shot his half of a phone conversation with me. Now, I was going to shoot my half of the conversation a few weeks later in London. But right now, I was just on the set feeding Trey my lines off camera. He was so happy that day. His career just had one of those moments of expansion that left him positively brimming with triumph. Joel and Ethan Cohen had just cast Trey in a leading role in their upcoming movie, Miller's Crossing. Trey was going directly from Great Balls of Fire drive to New Orleans, and start shooting with the Cone brothers, then fly back to New York for the weekend, see his wife, then fly back to New Orleans to finish the movie. It was a kind of whirlwind thing that every actor dreams of. That afternoon, after shooting the phone call, I was going downstairs to do my laundry one last time, and I ran into Trey heading out on his great adventure. He was carrying a big cardboard box. I asked if he needed a hand. He said, sure. I held open the doors for him as we headed across the parking lot to his car. My curiosity got the better of me, and I asked, what's in the box? He was beaming, and he told me they were tapes. 
He explained that on his days off, he had secretly been going over to Kiva Recording Studios. He always loved writing songs and decided while he was here in Memphis, he would record every song he had ever written. His wife had been bugging him for years about writing them down, and he kept putting her off. He was going to stop by Kiva on the way to New Orleans to store the master tapes. When he got back from New York, he would fly back and forth from New Orleans to Memphis to finish mixing them with the help of some of the great musicians who worked on our movie. I hugged Trey goodbye. I went back in and moved my clothes from the washer to the dryer. The next few days, I finished my scenes in Memphis and secretly, in my heart, I kissed this city goodbye. I came to Memphis as a single man. I left married and with a child on the way and a million memories and no outstanding warrants for my arrest. I went back to Los Angeles for two weeks before we took off for London to finish the movie. Anne and I, with the pooch and the hopelessly insane Coco, enjoyed the warm days of January and tried to get a grip on all of the changes life was about to throw at us. But like any masterful pitcher, life never reveals what's really coming. I got a phone call from Ricky Stein, one of the accountants on Great Balls of Fire, and my occasional dance partner at cast parties. I assumed she was calling with details about the London trip. My first wave of joy in hearing her voice was immediately stilled by her heart-rending sobs. Ricky was gasping for air on the other end of the line. Before I could say a word, Ricky said, Trey is dead. I screamed and dropped the phone. Anne ran into the room. Pooch hid under the bed. I tried to get a breath. I picked up the phone again and was able to get out. What? Ricky told me that Trey had started Miller's Crossing. He flew back to New York to see his wife for the weekend. That afternoon, he had a headache. He went to lie down. It was a cerebral hemorrhage, and he never woke up. Ricky and I both cried, couldn't speak. When words came back, she said, I have your tickets for London. I'll send them to your home. What had been one of the most fun and exciting shoots in my career had now become memorable in the grief that hung over all of our heads. Anne and I flew to London the next week. Jim McBride grimly told me that we were going to have to shoot my half of the phone conversation with Trey, the scene he shot his last day in Memphis. They had Trey's part on video. After the shoot, Dennis Quaid wanted all of us to gather at a hotel and have a memorial. It was one of those things they don't teach you in acting classes at the university. The scene was a lighthearted, even comedic conversation between two brothers, Judd and Sam Phillips. Most of the crew was from England, so they had no idea why the Americans that came over here were having such a hard time getting through the scene without crying. Jim asked me if I wanted to do it without the video. I said, no, no, the video doesn't bother me. I like seeing Trey's face again. Playing the scene to the image of Trey was comforting. Wasn't sad at all. After the shoot, all the cast met and went upstairs to an empty conference room in the Westbury Hotel. We sat in a big circle on the floor and then went around the room talking about our feelings for our friend. We said a prayer And then Jim and Dennis got a phone and called Trey's wife, Judy, in New York. This was in the age before cell phones, so a transatlantic phone call was a big deal. They punched the button for the speakerphone, and we all shared our thoughts with her. There was laughter and tears and loss. At one moment of laughter, she said she regretted that with all of Trey's musical talent, he had never recorded all of his songs. 
Judy said with a certain amount of pride, you know, he was really a great songwriter. I felt a white-hot blast of heat surging through me. I blurted out, you don't know. Everyone in the room looked at me as if I lost my mind. The voice on the speakerphone came back, know what? I stood and walked toward the phone on the floor. By way of that chance meeting in the parking lot, I became the only person who knew. I was the primary source. I called out to the phone on the floor. Trey recorded the songs. All of them. You don't know. Judy began crying on the other end of the line. Dennis and Jim and the rest of the cast had no idea what I was talking about. I continued, I helped him put them into his car. He said he was going to store them at Kiva Recording Studios and go back on his days off and finish mixing them. He said they were meant to be a gift for you, that you were always on his case for never recording them. There was a long moment of silence followed by sounds of laughter. She said, that's right. That's right. I said, they're in Memphis, at Kiva, in a brown cardboard box. They should still be there. And they were. Judy called me and told me that she flew to Memphis and the box was there, waiting. She thanked me profusely, but I told her I didn't do anything, really. It was just a matter of luck that I'd been walking down the stairway as Trey was leaving. As I look back at those days, maybe that's the nature of all miracles, from black holes to the accidental recital of Lady of Spain in the lobby of a hotel. Perhaps a miracle is nothing more than the momentary ability to see what was always there, to hear something we missed in all of the noise. It's the rare encounter with the primary source that causes a slight shift in the expected that leaves us silent on the other end of the phone line while everything in the world changes. That was The Primary Source, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, you want to let people know where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Yes, I think uh, something different than The Tobolowsky Files, you can look up the story I wrote for Kindle. It's a Kindle short, and it's exclusively for Kindle, so you won't find it anywhere else. And you could find that at stephentobolowsky.com. That's spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling. And, of course, you can also find me uh, – you can email me, if you wish, with any comments at uh, stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And before we wrap up, I should say that The Tobolowski Files is written and performed by actor Stephen Tobolowski, produced and edited by me, David Chen, with special thanks to Jeff Hansen from KOW in 94.9 in Seattle for his help in getting this show on the air, as well as to our interns, Brandon and Andrew, for their assistance. Um, and you can find every single episode of The Tobolowski Files at tobolowskifiles.com. Thanks for listening this week, guys. We'll see you guys later. Adios. Adios.